Happy Chinese New Year! This is Radio Three. Now, Carol May introduces another inspiring lecture on mind matters. Good morning, and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of abridged talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today we'll look into the work of Yu Yingxi. He is one of China's most famous historians and is known for his mastery of sources for Chinese history and philosophy, his ability to synthesize them on a wide range of topics, and for his advocacy for a new Confucianism. Professor Michael Puitz from Harvard University. We'll introduce some of Professor Yu's work and walk us through his thoughts. Professor Puitz was invited by New Asia College, the Department of History of Chinese University of Hong Kong, and the Hong Kong Museum of History to give a talk entitled "Comparative Approaches to the Study of Chinese Intellectual History: Reflections on the Work of Yu Yingxi." Let me begin by saying a few words about how he presented himself. As an historian, in other words, what were his own claims about being an historian? What did it mean for him to be an historian? How was he positioning himself vis-a-vis the historiographical tradition in China? And then, once we've gotten a glimpse of that, that will, I hope, propel us into the next question, which is, how was he understanding? Chinese history. <laughs> How was he reading Chinese history, given the arguments he was trying to give and giving his own position? And again, concluding with what we can learn from this exercise and what we can learn from this life project. So, to begin with that first question. How does he present his own work vis-a-vis the historiographical tradition in China? So he has many, many, many critiques of scholarship going on throughout the 20th century. Let me just begin with one of those, and we'll get to others as we go, get farther into the talk. But one of the arguments he will make is the following: the field of Chinese history, he will argue, has become divided between. This is in the 20th century. I mean, has become divided between two dominant approaches. In one of those approaches, the concern is with data, empirically accurate data. Now, Yuan Shu thinks this is wonderful. We should, of course, be accurate historians. But according to this argument, the concern is simply with coming up with an accurate understanding of what happened at what times in Chinese history, with no regard for, in fact, an active opposition to any sort of concern with. The position of the historian, the placement of that historian in his or her own historical context, and posing the question of why we are choosing to read these materials as we are—that's problem one. Problem two, he argues, is on the other side of the spectrum. Problem two involves what he will call grand interpretations of the entirety of Chinese history. So, unlike the former, which tends toward extreme specialization, obviously, this latter tends toward making grand arguments about Chinese history in general. Here, the argument is: you find the exact opposite problem. The exact opposite problem being that. People have imported largely Western categories for interpreting Chinese history. 
Those would include, of course, a Marxist notion of inherent teleological stages that every civilization must go through. Another one that he thinks is, is equally pernicious is any attempt to divide Chinese history into an ancient medieval modern divide, which of course comes directly from the study of Western history and is simply being applied to Chinese history. So one of his examples is Naito's famous hypothesis that the Song Dynasty begins modernity in China. And his argument is Naito's a great historian, but yet the entire framework presupposes a medieval period from which modernity will arise. And the question is, when precisely did it occur in China? Which for Yuan Shur is a very dangerous question because it is not based upon the proper questions an historian should ask. So if those are the two problems, in his opinion, sort of the spectrum of the positions he wants to oppose, he then will go to the next stage of his argument and say, they both share the exact same problem. Both of these positions are imports from Euro-American scholarship, specifically a scientific approach which mistakenly takes arguments developed from the sciences and thinks you can study human history without rethinking those approaches. Both, in other words, are committed to a view that you can have an objective understanding of history. It's simply that in one case, it's a view of a reductionistic set of data. In the other view, it's a scientific set of laws. Either way, it is an import from outside. Given that argument, the next stage, of course, makes sense, but let's follow out the full claim. So if this is the problem, the solution, he will argue, is let us look at the indigenous development of an historiographical tradition in China and ask if there are different ways of looking at Chinese history. The answer, of course, for him is definitively yes. And he will say then a few words about what that tradition is. So for Yu Yingxue, the key moment in the development of the Chinese historiographical tradition is, and this opening move will not be surprising, but it's, I've mentioned it because it will be important for how he will develop his own genealogy, it is Confucius and the authorship of the Spring and Autumn Annals. And Yu Yingxue will read that act based upon a commentarial tradition I will be getting to later that will say what Confucius was doing here was certainly giving a correct analysis of the state of Lu in the sense that everything that happens in the spring and autumn owls presumably happens, so it's not made up. But what Confucius is doing here is taking specific events involving specific figures in specific historical situations, reading then specific figures in specific historical situations, and consistently trying to do so with a normative claim. How did those figures sense the historical situation they were living in? Did they respond effectively or not? And how can we, or in this case, Confucius, understand that? And can he write in a way that would allow other people reading this work to be trained to do the same thing? In other words, if we are, to give a not random example, in the Han Dynasty reading the Chuncho, the Spring and Autumn Annals by Confucius, can we understand what Confucius is doing in the way he weaves his narration? 
the words he chooses, how he chooses to explain certain events and implicitly critique them. And as such, can we then take that same mode of reading and learn to understand critically our own moment by doing exactly what Confucius was doing in reading the history of the state of Lu. Then Yuring Shiro will continue. Who builds most powerfully upon this vision of historiography? Again, the name will not surprise you, but let me follow up the argument because it will be very important for what Yuring Shiro will claim to be doing. The next figure he turns to, again, not surprisingly, is Sima Chen. But again, Yuring Shiro's reading of Sima Chen is the key moment here. The argument is Sima Chen is taking the next step from Confucius, not next step in the sense of developing a different methodology, rather the next step simply being that he lived in a different historical moment. Living in the early Han, Sima Chen doing the same work Confucius was doing with the state of Lu is trying to pose the same question. How can I understand the development of the entire historical process up to my day by looking at how specific figures in specific situations responded, what potentialities were opened up by those who responded effectively, what was closed down by those who responded poorly, and how can we both understand that historical process, but if we do this well, how can we also open up through that very active reading, possibilities for going forward. Because it is a different time period, it is a radically different genre. So if Confucius writes the Spring and Autumn Annals in this very tight, laconic style, Sima Qin, on the contrary, will write this massive, sprawling work covering the entirety of Chinese history, giving multiple perspectives of different events, generically a radically different work but, Yun Shir will argue, doing the same kind of project. Meaning that we, the latter born, ought to read this work as that, as taking events, yes, it's accurate, he's not making things up, but taking events, reading it through this very complex lens that will open up possibilities for us if we see how those possibilities were opened up and closed off through that lengthy historical process. Now, it is very clear where Yu Yingshu is going with this, but let me now lay it out because he's fairly explicit. What Yu Yingshu wants to argue is one of the tragedies of 20th century China is this historiographical tradition is not gone. He thinks some people are practitioners of it, but he thinks it has been radically curtailed. And he clearly sees part of his own project as being a continuation of precisely this historiographical tradition. It is an historiographical tradition that he explicitly says is based inherently on moral and political critique, based upon a very complex reading of the tradition, and specifically doing it through a normative lens where you were seeing again what possibilities opened and were closed. More specifically, to get into a bit more of his language, which will be crucial for where we're going, the argument is, were we to do this, we would see that there is a pattern 
The term, of course, is Lee. He's pulling this from, we will see later the full genealogy, but he's pulling this from Zhu Xi. Later, Wang Yang means rereading, and he will, as we will see later, read pieces of this back into the early tradition. We will see there are patterns in Chinese history, and those patterns consist of things like, sure, right, potentialities, possibilities that are either opened up or closed depending on how people respond to the tradition. Accordingly, if we reread Chinese history, what we are doing is trying to trace out how we got to where we are, training ourselves through a close reading of these texts to see how to understand what they were doing, also seeing what potentialities were opened up and again, closed off with specific actions that were taken, all of which would be written if it's done effectively with the goal of opening up possibilities and potentials now. This for him is what an historian ought to be doing. As he also notes quite correctly, read this way, history in the Chinese tradition therefore becomes one of the foundational and single most important acts. It includes things that would otherwise, as for example in the Western tradition, to give an obvious example, be seen as separate activities. So in the West, you would have philosophers who would deal with philosophical ideas. <laughs> you would have historians who would do careful historical analyses. According to this way of reading, Confucius, by definition, is absolutely a philosopher, but he does it through close historical readings. Sima Qian does the work of what we would call a philosopher, through, again, historical readings, and needless to say, the implication is he, Yuying sure, is hoping to do the same. This is a philosophical rereading of Chinese history, but it is done through an intensely close intellectual history of specific figures. This is what Yuying sure wants to claim he is doing and how he is positioning himself vis-a-vis -vis the entire tradition. He is continuing an indigenous practice of Chinese historiography that he feels has been largely cut off and he wants to revive. You're listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Professor Michael Puitz from Harvard University telling us some background of Yu Yingxi. Next, he will continue to explore the importance of Professor Yu's work and his thoughts. So, let us jump into what his argument is. It is complicated, so let me begin by means of an example before I try to articulate the larger vision. I worry if I try to articulate it too quickly, it will lose so much nuance that, that too much of the power will be lost. So let me instead turn to one of his later books, I'm not terribly late, but 2014, um, and this is a book he wrote, his reading of the early period, and it is a book that also had different versions in both Chinese and English since about 1997, and he's spoken many times saying actually he was even working on this a couple of decades before, so it's really his re-summary of what he wants to say for the early period. Um, this, of course, is after the work he was doing that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk on conceptions of the afterlife. That was from a dissertation he had written at Harvard much, much earlier. This was his attempt to begin the larger project that I'm mentioning. Um, begin, uh, 
chronologically speaking, again, it's relatively late. So the work I'm talking about, it's called the Lun Tenrenger Gis, Discourse on the Boundary Between Heaven and Humanity. And let me give you first a very brief summary of the book and then take you through what he's trying to do. The first part of the summary involves yet another critique. So Yu Yingshir is writing this in part as a critique of what had become a dominant way of reading not just early China, but really the entire Chinese tradition. That dominant position goes along the following lines. In China, there is a distinctive worldview based upon the idea that humans and heaven are inherently in harmony. That notion, according to a set of views that he is going to be critiquing very strongly, involves the following sets of claims. This is an assumption that emerges in early China. Some would argue, and he will critique some variations of this coming out of a much earlier shamanistic worldview. It is then articulated later into a correlative system involving five phases, yin yang, etc. That correlative system, that vision of an organismic cosmos, continues as an assumption in Chinese history. It is in part broken up in the 20th century, but various figures he is looking at and critiquing want to say we need to revive this because a revival of this earlier worldview would mean a solution to the world's problems. For example, things like climate devastation, which was certainly already <laughs> a problem very well known in the 20th century, would be solved because humans would see themselves as inherently a part of the natural world. And so you would have a solution to a lot of the problems of modernity by bringing back this worldview. Now, as we will see, Jung Schur's critique here is not against all of what I just mentioned, but his critique is reading this as a worldview. The reason for this, as we will see, and this is going to be crucial for his entire way of reading, is he wants to say, if you read this as a worldview, it means people are simply born into this worldview, and you analyze the work they are doing as examples of this inherent way of thinking in Chinese history. For you sure, for reasons we've already begun to see, and we will see much more momentarily, this is incredibly dangerous because what you lose is the work of specific figures who will make specific arguments at specific moments, sometimes exactly along the lines of what I mentioned, but we must understand when and why they made these arguments, what potentials were opened up when they did it effectively, and again, as we will see, what potentials were closed off when they did it poorly. That is the work for you ensure that matters. Accordingly, he will write a book to rethink the emergence of this notion. And that's even a dangerous way of putting it. He's not just rethinking the emergence of the notion. He really wants to rethink our understanding of how intellectual history operates. It's a very complicated book, but I'll just say a few brief, <laughs> brief words so that we can have a sense of what he's talking about to get into the, a, a little bit of the detail. So very briefly, the argument runs along the following lines. He notes quite correctly that many scholars making an argument along the lines I mentioned before will build it out of a story that comes from a text called the Goryu. Um, and in that story, very, very briefly, 
The story is in distant antiquity, humans and gods had a proper relationship with each other. And at a certain moment, this was lost and the proper relationship broke down and there was no boundary between heaven and humanity. And then the early sage rulers who become one of the, among the founders of Chinese civilization come in and reestablish a proper relationship involving, among other things, figures called the Wu, um, which he, following other figures, will translate as shamans, but he will also just call them religious specialists. And these figures were the ones charged with properly working on the communication between heaven and the gods, I mean, between humans and the gods in heaven. Now, Yuring Shur will immediately say, this is not a story about the inherent harmony of humanity and the natural world. In fact, it has nothing to do with the natural world at all. It has to do with heaven. And the whole theme of it is in terms of communication. And if it is in terms of communication, the moral of the story is proper communication occurs when it is strongly restricted by a ruler who is in charge of a series of religious specialists who are given sole ability to connect with divine powers. And this breaks off the communication that anyone else would have to those divine powers, except via the mediation of these religious specialists under the explicit control of a ruler. In other words, we should read this not as a founding assumption from early China. It's not even representative of an assumption at all about humans in the natural world. It actually is, on the contrary, an argument in favor of a stratical restriction of communication and access between humans and the divine. For Yu Ying Shur, this actually is what a lot of the key figures he is going to be looking at are reacting against. And when he works out how they're reacting, note again the way he will do it. It is consistently in terms of how specific figures worked on specific aspects of this effectively or not. So I'll begin with an obviously effective one for you being sure. Confucius. So what is Confucius doing? According to this reading, Confucius is actively breaking down that barrier, and he is breaking down the barrier by beginning what Yu Ying Shu will call an inward move toward transcendence. Meaning that, for Confucius, heaven becomes a constant companion, and you will quote, of course, lines from the Analects that will literally speak of this, Heaven becomes a constant companion to Confucius. Confucius will see himself as working out of an earlier ritual tradition, but he will place the key for that ritual tradition as being inner cultivation, inner cultivation that will give you access to heaven. That is in potentia, I'll come back to why I use that term, open to those who so train themselves and it is no longer restricted to religious specialists of any kind. And once he makes that move, only then, you sure will argue, do you begin the key for him interplay between 
the Transcendental Order and Mundane Lived Reality that, in his opinion, will be worked out in a very specific and borderline unique way, comparatively speaking. Very specifically, the argument will be, this is when you get a notion of the Tao, which for you sure, when it's used effectively, means the following. If you are concerned with the Tao, and he thinks Confucius was one of the key figures who begins this process, what you are concerned with is something that is beyond the world that we are currently living in, not again in the kind of transcendental sense of a radical other. So to give an example, I will be detailing much more momentarily, not a platonic ideal, not a Christian deity, rather something better than and beyond the current world we're living in, and yet not giving you any kind of ultimate transcendental view. However, it creates a tension between the lived reality and a possibility that exists beyond it. But because that possibility is never going to be articulatable when he thinks it's done right as something that can be clearly defined, what it means is it creates this constant tension between trying to create a better world here and now, always seeing the, the uh, by definition, limitations of what exists right now. So you're training yourself to see those limitations. And yet the notion of the Tao will not give you an immediate answer as to what a better world would be. It simply gives you this sense of something better. And that better, as we will see, will be articulated radically differently. But it's that tension that matters, which means that actually what's going on here is not a notion of an inherent harmony. It's rather the beginning of a tension between a transcendental realm and mundane reality, but again, worked out in a very distinctive way. I keep emphasizing distinctive because here, Yun sure will bring in the comparative data. And he will build on the argument of a figure called Carl Jaspers, who very famously in 1949, so several decades before, but at a telling moment, right at the end of World War II, tries to make an argument for universal enlightenment values. And the way he will do this is to say, all enlightened values are, again, universal. They are found in any great civilization, Jaspers will argue. However, they're not found in the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment in the 18th century is simply a late European redevelopment of these ideas. Where it really occurs is what is in what Carl Jaspers will call, and he's the first to coin this term, the Axial Age. This period midway through the first millennium BCE, when, according to Jaspers, you get figures like Plato, Aristotle, the Buddha, the Jains, Confucius, <laughs> Lao Tzu, all at roughly the same time, creating what Jaspers will call a transcendental vision of enlightened values, all of which occur across the board at this time, meaning that we now, in 1949, if we we're in Jaspers' shoes, should try to live up to these enlightened values, as obviously <laughs> he felt what was to put it mildly, horribly failing in the world he was coming from. He grew up, of course, in Germany. And his argument was 
These are cosmopolitan enlightenment values held by all great civilizations. To which, as you can probably already see, Yu Yingshur is saying he's happy to still use the word transcendental, but he is arguing the notion of a transcendence that you're getting here is unlike anything you're getting in any other civilization. It is not, and here I will put a little bit more elaboration on a comment I made briefly before, it is not the platonic notion of radical ideal forms that you are critiquing the mundane reality by, it is rather this notion of a Tao, which is based in an inherent tension, but without giving you a very clear, that's putting it too mildly, without giving you any clear sense of what exactly that higher value will be. That, for you sure, is a new development in China, but again, for him, really in world history. And it does not come out of an assumption. It, becomes, it comes out of an active work by Confucius, precisely through the work we mentioned before of rereading the tradition to open up this possibility. He will then, you sure, will then read the subsequent development of warring states thought along these lines. And here I won't take you through the details, but suffice to say, his move is to say with all of the debates going on, where are people building powerfully upon these ideas and where are they not? <laughs> and for him, that is the crucial question. That was Professor Michael Pruitt from Harvard University. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters.